0: Okay, hey, it says it's life, so you go ahead and search okay. it all and verify that. I, uh, I
1: watch no shade. I have done what is righteous and just. Do not leave me to my oppressor. Ensure your servant's well-being. Let not the arrogant oppressor. My eyes fail, looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your love, and teach me your decrees. I am your servant. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act, O Lord. Your law is being broken because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider your precepts right. I hate every wrong path.
0: way. Okay, let's see here. We've got, uh me a second. Today is October 7th. I guess I'll read this first because I don't have a bookmarker and if I drop it, then we're going to lose our space. So here we go. October 7th. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. These words of Zechariah were the motto of Jonathan Goforth. Sounds about right. Goforth. And his life illustrated their truth. One of 11 children, Goforth was born on a farm near London, Ontario in 1859. His spiritual pilgrimage began at the age of 18 as he was struggling to finish high school. A Presbyterian pastor named Lachlan Cameron visited the school frequently to hold Bible studies. Goforth took a liking to the pastor and decided to visit his church. On his third visit, Goforth felt as if the pastor were preaching directly to him. At the end of the sermon, Goforth privately bowed his head and yielded himself to Christ. Sometime later, when visiting his brother Will's farm 15 miles away, Will's father-in-law gave Goforth a copy of the memoirs of Robert Murray, on the ride home in his horse and buggy. He started reading the story of the Church of Scotland pastor and soul winner. He became so engrossed in it that he tethered his horse to a tree and read until the sun was about to set. Captivated by McChain's, I guess that's how you pronounce this guy's name, burden for evangelism, Goforth resolved to devote his life to leading the unsaved to the Savior. While still in high school, Goforth heard a missionary to the Far East express his heartbreak that he had not been able to find any young men to carry on the work that he had begun. Goforth heard the Lord asking, who will go for us and who shall we send? And he answered, here I am, send me. That hour marked the beginning of Jonathan Goforth's missionary career. While attending Knox College in Toronto, he spent much time visiting the city's slums. It was in connection with his mission work in Toronto that he met Rosalind Bell Smith, whom everyone knew as Rose, a member of a wealthy Episcopal, wealthy Episcopalian family and more important, born again christian upon meeting him rose noticed the shabbiness of his clothes but couldn't help but being taken by the shining purpose in his eyes a few days later she was able to sneak a peek at his well-worn bible and found it filled with notes from cover to cover she decided that this was the man she wanted to marry jonathan felt the same way and they were married in october 1884 four months later they sailed for china In China, Jonathan and Rose and their growing family traveled from place to place doing evangelistic work. His ministry was truly blessed by God, and many hundreds came to know Christ through his preaching. But the hardships of missionary life cost them dearly. Five of their 11 children died in China. Goforth went to Korea to see firsthand the results of the revival of 1907 that occurred there. He returned to China and... I'm sorry, China with some Koreans who had participated, and together they brought the revival to China. When nearly 70 years old, Goforth pioneered a new work in Manchuria, and in a short period of time won thousands to Christ and trained over 70 evangelists to carry on the work. Even after going blind, he stayed on ministering for another year. Returning to Canada in 1934, Goforth was much in demand as a speaker, Although in his mid-70s and now blind, he spoke at 481 meetings in 18 months. His last Sunday in Toronto, he spoke four times. Then on October 7th, 1936, he traveled 40 miles to give what would be his final address. The next morning, Rose woke early, thinking Jonathan was still sleeping, but then she realized that he had passed into the land that is fairer than day. A few weeks later, a few weeks earlier, he had said that he had rejoiced to know that the first face he would see upon dying would be his Savior's. Now he saw him face to face. God took a Canadian farm boy and by his spirit made him one of the most productive missionaries of all time. His secret was that he was wholly committed to God and trusted that he would work through him by his spirit. What can you learn from Jonathan Goforth's life? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and will tell people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Good stuff. He. You wouldn't know
1: where that verse is from, would you?
0: Uh, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> now we posted that four days ago. Um, yeah, my grandmother's father was in. Whoops, my grandmother's father was in China at the same time, so I wonder if they worked together at all, because he was also an Episcopal, he was a medical missionary in China at the same time, so it's very possible he didn't that have they... 11 kids by he didn't have 11 kids, I don't think, but he did have my grandma, I know that much, and she uh, she was born there in China, and uh, she's got lots of things from China, which you know are all in my house now, because I love the the Oriental things. And, uh, that was why I ended up marrying Hideko, was cause grandma always told me about China. And I'd sit and look at all the things that she had brought home. And I would look at maps of the Orient. I remembered the names of all the rivers all throughout South China and Vietnam and Japan. And I said, I want to go there someday. So when I was 19, I said, how am I ever going to go to Japan? And then I said, ah, I'll join the air force. And so we, I was telling, uh, Don about that when I was in Boulder as, uh, now, on, when you go into the Air Force, they give you uh, eight, and eight 16 choices, where do you want to go? And you can put any, anywhere in the world, you just put down your choices, and they said, don't just put one thing, because then if you, they don't have something open, they'll send you anywhere. And I said, I don't care, they can send me anywhere they want if they don't send me to Japan. So I wrote two letters, J-A, and I put my name on it, and that was it. And I ended up in Japan for six years, and then Malaysia for three more. So there you go. And then when I told Hidako we were going to Japan, she said, I don't want to go to Japan. So <laughs> I didn't ask first, and she was not appreciative of that. She wanted to stay in the U.S. Okay, we got some prayer requests, and then we'll open. Let's see here. Jonathan has asked for prayer for his father, Tekki Yu. Uh, he's from Korea. And his younger brother and wife, Jong and Julia, He they, keep, they need to come to the Lord. And he's asking for prayer about that. Uh, Brian Everson in Oregon has COVID. Sean Williamson, who lives right over in Lehigh Acres, he had a bad heart. We've been praying for him, and he got better, and he just took a bad turn. That's all he emailed me about a day ago. He says, I've taken a bad turn, so i will keep Sean in prayer. Uh, David, um, I can't read my own handwriting. Oh, David B. David Black's father died, and mom and family need prayers. I wrote that, and, you know, I'm trying to write in that chair, and sometimes I got a dog bumping my hand or something. So David Black's father has died, and he seemed okay with it, but he said that uh, the wife and the family do need prayers. And then Chuck Seward, who was here, he sang with his Philippine wife, remember? Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. he has a virus. He said he is deathly ill with 100 to 104 temperatures for two weeks, and nothing is working, and they don't know what it is. And so we want to keep chucking prayer as well. So we'll go to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, you know these and any other prayer needs that are out there that are on people's hearts and in their minds. Um, I've got a friend in California that needs some some prayer about direction in his life. And so we would lift him up as well. And Lord, we certainly uh, lift these people up to you, their needs, their trials. And we would ask that you would be with them and help them to uh, uh, get through these things or to be comforted in their affliction or whatever. The need was that was mentioned, Lord, please, or those that need Christ, we would ask that you would somehow intervene in their lives and show them their need for making that call out to him. Lord, thank you that we can pray for people, and we know that we have a mediator right in our presence. The Holy Spirit is intercessing for us, and uh, Jesus is the mediator in heaven who brings these things to you. So we pray that uh, these things will be brought to your ears, and you will be attentive. And Lord, we Ask that this uh, class would be conducted properly and that uh, whatever is said would be of right doctrine and if it is not that you would alert us to it help people not to uh, just make the right uh, make the wrong choice concerning something i say if it is incorrect lord we thank you for the chance to meet here we're so grateful for it we thank you and praise you in jesus name amen okay we are in ephesians 5 right. verse 15 yes 15
1: um, it's the beginning of a paragraph. Do you want me to go back?
0: A Wherever you want.
1: Yeah, let's go back to uh, the book. Okay. Eight. For you were once darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Live as children of light. The fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord, having nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. It is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 15. Be very careful, then, how you live, uh, not as unwise, but as wise.
0: Okay, that's more of a paraphrase. This one says, See, then, that you walk circumspectly, which I'm certain is what the Greek says, because Paul always talks about walking, the conduct of your life, not as fools, but as wise. Okay, let's see here. 5.15, Paul now begins with see then. This is instruction based on the previous verse, which you read, but I might as well read it for context. So give me a second to go back there. Uh, the previous verse was 14. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then. All right, let's see here. See then, we, as we are given the light of Christ, we are to then ensure that we walk circumspectly. The word is acribos. I'm sorry, acribos. Then it means the high point, extreme, properly, extremely accurate, very exact, more or very accurate because researched down to the finest detail or factually precise. That's help, word studies, evaluation of that word. Basically, it means just summing it up, factually precise. Okay, uh,
1: so I think he said it was
0: like a catwalk. <laughs> yeah, like a catwalk. Uh, it could be. Yeah. You know, that's a good example. I'll tell you something. I was watching a video on, you know, one of those, I always click on like a one minute video while goes cooking if I know dinner's going to be ready in a minute. And there's one about the difference between cats and dogs. Okay, it was very well done. They had uh, all these things that they laid out on the floor. There's a hallway, and all these things are just right there you know like uh pencils sticking up and and little cones and just all kinds of stuff and it's like you can get around it, but you'd have to walk and there's a dog and he walks up and he just sits down i'm not i'm not even gonna attempt it right and then they show and it wasn't a real difficult thing yet they show the cat he walks and he's just like you said walking circumspectly he's walking very carefully okay he gets through it no problem okay then they put some food or something with more stuff. And of course the dog wants the food. So he just clumbers through it and everything goes over and they put the dog there. I'm the cat and the cat just, and they did it with different things in different patterns. And I don't care how difficult it was that cat was able to walk just and So that's a really good analogy at first. I thought that's a stupid analogy because cats are so I won't say it anyway. um, But that is a very good analogy because cats do walk very carefully and they can, they can walk through. It was crazy. The things that that cat could walk through without touching anything. Whereas, you know, even a person couldn't have done it. You know, it just, you'd be like, oh, you know. Anyway, so I, I wish I could think of that video, but it was just a very short video about the difference between cats and dogs and how they can do certain things. And dogs obviously can't. They just, you know, I love my dogs, but they're not really gracious or graceful animals. Cats really are. Um, okay, so uh, walking like a cat. All right. In other words, our walk is to be based on that light, the light that we read in the previous verse, which we receive when we depart from the ways in which we once lived and instead to pursue Christ as he is. Now you think about the missionary we just read about a minute ago and he dedicated his life to the Lord and he was able to be a light to so many people that thousands throughout the Orient, what do you say, Manchuria and all through China and Korea, he was able to uh, you know, convince people of Christ, and it had to start with his walk. It had to start with people noticing him as something different, because if not, who would want to even listen? So, there you go. Um, instead, pursue Christ as he is. This is described by Paul with the words, not as fools, but as wise. Fools in the Bible depicted are depicted as having no spiritual wisdom. Okay, that's Old Testament and New. You'll see words that are translated as fool, and there are quite a few of them. But in the New Testament, quite often it is the word moros, which is the root of our word moron today. And so when we think of a moron, we think of a fool. All right, well, that's where that word comes from. It's the Greek word, and uh, they are depicted as not being wise people. A fool is somebody that makes ungodly or uh, decisions, maybe not so much ungodly as decisions without God. So you, you don't have to do something ungodly. You just do something that doesn't contain God. Obviously, it is ungodly in itself, but, you know, in other words, I'm trying to make a distinction between the things that are truly ungodly. I'm just going to act in an immoral way, and somebody that just doesn't think life through, and he's not intentionally doing something immoral. He's just a fool because he's not including God in it. So, a little difference, but some people purposely are fools, and some people are fools just because they are. You know, the person that, as it says, is the man that turns on the bed. Um, how is it, uh, he, he uh, turns on his bed and the house, he, in other words, there's crops that need to be tended to, the house needs to be fixed, and here he is turning on his bed. I can't remember the exact proverb, and then uh, the same thing as, as a door swivels on its hinges is a lazy man. It's just back and forth, and they're not being productive. And that would be a foolish person, even if he's not intentionally being a fool, he's just not wise. So, anyway, um, this is described by Paul with the words, not as fools, but as wise." Fools in the Bible are depicted as having no spiritual wisdom. They live in sensual pleasure, and sensual pleasure can be simply lying on your bed and not doing anything. I mean, if you're not being a productive human being, and pursue those desires with reckless abandon. Some people take it to extremes, and they not only are just foolish with their time, they're actually foolish with their time. They're acting it out. They are careless about sin and unconcerned about the things of God. The wise, on the other hand, are those who fear God. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is the bidding of wisdom. That's right. After fearing the Lord, they pursue him and his ways. They emulate him, and they are willing to be pleasing to him as faithful subjects of his kingdom. Their eyes are set on heavenly things, away from that which is earthly and sensual. And it's a good example of this. My friend Michael, just a minute ago, just before we started, I wanted to clear out any easy emails, and he had sent just a picture. And on a car is a little bumper sticker on the window. And it says, do you follow Jesus as closely as you're following me? And I thought, that is a really insightful thing. Because, you know, you can be saved, and you can still be foolish about your time that you're spending in the Bible, spending time with, you know, fellowship with other people and things like that. And so, I just, I got the biggest kick out of that. Are you following Jesus as closely as you're following me? So, oh, that's great, great bumper sticker.
1: Not as funny as yours.
0: Which one? Uh, Oh, yeah. Well, that was Chris. You know, people think I was being arrogant with that on my car. Um, uh, Jesus loves you, but he loves me more. But Chris actually got that for me. Isn't that
1: Jesus loves but I'm his favorite. Oh, that's
0: right. Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. That's right. (laughs) I did not buy that. Okay. I, whether it's true or not is a little... No, anyway, that was from Chris. So, uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Jesus loves you, the but I'm his favorite. The what? The,
1: the woman now gave us me. The friend <laughs> <gave it>
0: speed. <laughs> That's right. There you go. Blame it on her. Okay, uh, they emulate him. These are the godly people that are following Jesus closely. They emulate him and are willing to be pleasing to him as faithful subjects of his kingdom. Their eyes are set on heavenly things away from that which is earthly and sensual. Okay, um, as I always say, I try to include it at least once a study. My favorite Bible verse is Hebrews 12 too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. If you're going to do that, if you're going to fix your eyes on Jesus, then everything else is going to fade away in some measure, okay? Obviously, we get diverted throughout the day, and your eyes go to other things. But if you're thinking about Jesus, if your eyes are attentive to Jesus, if he is in your foresight, then you're going to want to pursue him. And it doesn't mean I do just because it's my favorite verse in the Bible. Doesn't mean that I'm actively doing that. I know that I'm about as fallible as any human being that's ever existed. But I try to remember that verse. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You know, and keep. You are his favorite. Oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah I'm his favorite. There you go. So, um, okay, life application. That was very short commentary. We should go back and retype that longer. Um, Let us endeavor to pursue the words of this verse with all of our hearts and souls. And the way to do it is to know what the Lord considers foolish or wise. This is learned through applying the words of Scripture. Life application, learn your Bible. I can't say it enough. I mean, you know, I just, I go through these things with family. I go through it with friends. And there's just no way that your life is going to be properly directed to the Lord unless you are learning your Bible. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry. You know, people go to church and they get good lessons and they get good um, sermons, I'm, you know, things like that. But that is a small part of your time with the Lord. You're in church, even if you go three times a week, you're in church, what, five hours, an hour and a half maybe? Is that all the time you're going to devote to the Lord? Is five hours a week? Forget that. Read your Bible and read it every day. Read it every night. Read it in the morning. And just dwell on the Word of God. Let it, as Paul says, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. And then from there, you'll know that if you're being given a wrong sermon, you'll know if somebody's saying something that isn't wise, that's foolish. Okay? You're not going to know that unless you know the Bible. Um, The Proverbs really are the place, if you just want real quick, instruction on how to know how to not be foolish or how to be wise you just go to the proverbs and you read one chapter a day it's 31 chapters long and in 31 days you'll have all of that i find the proverbs probably the second hardest book in the bible for me to read because it's short little things and there's a lot of short little things every one of them is important and so you get overwhelmed overwhelmed really quickly Because some people love the Proverbs because that's how they are geared. They like little things and they can remember short little things. And so they walk around all day quoting a proverb. Burke is like that. You know, there's always something coming off his head that's short and quick. I can't do that. I like to read narrative form. And, you know, when I'm doing a sermon, I'll get into the details of it. But um, the Proverbs are really hard for me to read. The other section that is really difficult, at least for me, is... Ezekiel, you know, from about 40 through 47, where he's talking about the the details of the layout of the temple, mm-hmm. the area around the temple. It's just hard for me to read because it it almost takes an architect to understand all of the way that things are being formed. It's much more detailed than the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, the tabernacle uh, in the wilderness in Exodus. That's much easier reading, but he'll say, you know, there's this here and then it gets wider as it goes up and you have to like mentally, I'm not good at mentally doing things like that.
1: 43 though is where the glory comes
0: Well, that's right. The 43, the glory comes back. That's right. So there are things in there, but I'm talking about just the whole overlay of it. How how the, uh, uh, now my daughter would probably read those and do really well. And the reason why is if you have these puzzles, you know, the ones that you have to do certain things and you fit them together and it, there's only one way that they'll fit and nothing else will do. and, you know, you can give that to me and I can spend the rest of my day trying to do it and I'll never get it together. I'm not kidding. She can take a, a thing that has like eight pieces and it's supposed to come out like a star, right? It's just eight pieces and you put them together and they'll make a star and they hold together. They're, they're made to only fit one way. And she can look at it, just evaluate it by looking at it and then pick it up and put it together. And I could spend a month doing it and not come any closer. Literally. I'm not kidding. So I bet you she would be able to read those things from Ezekiel and say, oh, I understand how that fits and, you know, all of that. I just can't. So I find that hard to read. I read it anyway because I know I'm learning something every time I read, but I find it hard to read. Another thing that's good in that section is, you know, the water coming out of the uh, the, uh, temple, the south side of the temple, and going down into the valley. That's all very interesting, but the details of the construction of the temple are just very hard for me to grasp. Um, about
1: ahead. Proverbs for a second. What yep. I found crazy about it is that you'll have a sentence that deals with this topic over here, and then the next one will be something, something completely totally different. different. You're going like, okay, I'm still digesting this one. That's right. right. Yeah. So what Linda and I did when we were reading the Bible together, I would say, okay, we'll, we'll alternate. I'll do this line, then you do the next one, and it really went a lot
0: smoother. Smooth. Oh, I'm glad to hear it, because you're right, it's very hard because it's just thoughts that are being presented, one after another, and of course you get Proverbs, what, one through six or something, it's all in narrative format, that's easy. But once you get into the single Proverbs, and it's just a thought about this, and it's a thought about... I. I don't process that well. I love to read them. I understand it. And I'm always saying, oh, this is Proverbs 18, 2 or something. I'll never forget that because it's so insightful. And five minutes later, I've forgotten because I've read 10 other things that are very complicated Mm -hmm. as they fit with other things. Yeah. So that's my problem with Proverbs. And I don't mean to have anybody here when I say that. I don't want anybody else to feel like, oh, I'm not going to read that because you might benefit more from reading the Proverbs than I would in reading them a thousand times. So I will never diminish somebody else's ability to grasp things that I can't. I'm just saying what my hard thing is, and obviously you kind of have that same problem. But um, you don't don't feel like, because I've said that, I don't want to ever diminish the word for anybody because people will find richness in it in their own way. So didn't mean to do that where I would harm somebody's Bible reading. As a matter of fact, just forget everything I just said. (laughs) Go ahead. Verse 15, 516. Okay. Wait, wait, let me turn so I can be there. Give me one second, and go ahead.
1: Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil.
0: Okay, the first half of the clause is different. Redeeming the time, it says, because the days are evil. So, redeeming the time. In other words, you've only got so much time in this life. You've only got so much time in your week. You've only got... So much time during any given day, and you might as well redeem the time. Find it valuable for something that is productive. Don't be foolish like the previous verse. Find something that is productive in the day. Um, before I even evaluate this, I've got a guy that uh, he came out today to do some work at the house. He's a guy that uh, you know him, and he's a very nice person. Um, he he is like this. He's here, and then he's here, and then he's here, and then he's here. Okay, and he attends a church where they teach hyper dispensationalism. and it it is wrong theology. It's very, very poor theology. And it it was good to have him at the house while he was doing this small job for us and for us and my dad, you know, because both our houses are petty corner to each other and was helping both things. But anyway, we're talking the whole time that we were together about the word. And so, whether he benefited from my correction or not, at least we were redeeming the time. That's the point is that you've got only so many hours in a day. And if he came over and all we did was talk about sports, what did we benefit? You know, I mean, he started talking about sports about, to make a point about something. And I said, you got the wrong guy because I don't know anything about sports. I, I'm the worst sport person in the world and I I don't understand it. And it's just not the thing for me. But Immediately, he was making a point to get into something about the Bible. And anytime we're together, that's all we will talk about is the Bible. We're redeeming the time. Um, I want you to know that if you accept the premise of hyper dispensationalism, then uh, there's a real problem with that. Basically, what it teaches is you got your dispensations, you've got the, the seven dispensations of time. Hyperdispensationalism dispensationalism takes the age of grace, actually, it takes the whole Bible, but what it does is it divides it between Jews. And Gentiles. Okay, there's one gospel that goes to the Jews. There's one gospel that goes to the Gentiles, and the twain shall never meet. Okay, it's very poor theology. It's actually heresy. Um, uh, I don't know how to even convince somebody because you can you're dealing with the exact same verses, and yet they come to completely different conclusions. But their idea is that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he gave a gospel that is presented to the Gentiles and the Jews have a different gospel that is presented to them. And I showed them right from 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read you these verses. And this all has to do with this verse anyway. We're redeeming the time because we're talking about Scripture. But first I'll take you to 1 Corinthians 15. I think it's important enough to once in a while address this issue so that people understand the problem with hyperdispensationalism. In chapter 15, Paul is talking right from the beginning. He gives the gospel. And then he talks about uh, something that I'll address in a second. Okay. Then he says, um, uh, where is it? Um, Therefore, this is verse 11, 15, 11, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached to you and so you believed. Well, who is he talking about? Because if you understand who he's talking about there, then you'll know that they're preaching exactly the same gospel. So you go back up and you look for the context, because context is what matters when you're evaluating a particular issue. Here it says in verse 3, He gives the gospel, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he died, that he rose again the third day according to Scriptures, and that he was seen by, and here it is, by Cephas, which is Paul. I'm Peter, Peter. He was seen by Cephas. Then he was seen by the Twelve. Obviously, Judas was dead. It's a term, speaking of the apostles. All of the apostles. seen by Cephas, Peter. Then by the Twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren, all Jews, because this is at the time of the resurrection, okay, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, the leader of the Jewish church, according to hyper-dispensationalists. Then by all the apostles, Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, and he qualifies it by saying, as by one born out of due time. I, Paul, and then he says, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, okay, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me, and then he sums it up. Therefore whether it was I or they. All of the people that are supposedly preaching to Jews only with a gospel that's going to the Jews, he says it's the same gospel because he just gave it in verses 3 and 4 to start his thought, and he ends it with the fact that we all preach the same gospel. If you hear somebody dividing the church into Paul and Peter, to Jew and Gentile, you need to stop listening to that person. You need to get away from that theology because it is a heresy. There's one gospel according to Paul in Galatians chapter 1. Anything else is anathema. And this is a real problem in the church. And this poor guy is stuck in this. And so I have to show him. And then he says, yeah, that's right. And then I know he's going to go back over there. And he's going to say, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, here's a question that I asked him. Who did Paul always go to first? Always.
1: And that old say, the Jews. The
0: the Jews. And then what did they do? They rejected his message, and so then he says, okay, I'm now going to the Gentiles. And he did it. If he is preaching only to the Gentiles, then why would he even bother going to the Jews? He's giving them one gospel, and the point isn't that there are two gospels. The point is that the Jews rejected Jesus. And he does it again and again and again throughout the book of Acts. Even on the last page of the book of Acts, he goes first in Rome, to, in Rome he goes to present himself to the Jews. And then they turned away from him, and the book of Acts ends the way it's supposed to, therefore I will go to the Gentiles. And it's setting up the entire dispensational model for the church age. What happens? He's in Rome, and what happens right after the book of Acts? The book of Romans. And the next Thirteen letters are all Paul's epistles. It's the church age. The Bible, the structure of the Bible, is laid out in accord with the dispensational model. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, go back and read the three introductory sections to the book of Acts that we started a week and a half ago. I lay all of it out. The entire structure of the Bible is based on Noah's prophecy over his two sons, Shem and Japheth. If you want to know what's going to happen as far as the structure of the Bible, go back and read that blessing over his sons. I'll read it to you right now. This is, once again, we're redeeming the time. I have no problem diverting from Ephesians chapter 5, but it says there in Genesis chapter 9, give me just one second to turn in the right direction. I was going in the wrong direction. It says right there, um, where is it? Okay, we're going to just start with 24. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. That takes care of the problem right there. No spiritual blessing on the, the Canaan, who is the son of Ham. He can't curse Ham because the Lord already blessed him. And because he blessed Ham, he turned around and cursed his son instead of him. So, cursed be Canaan. Verse 26, And he said, Blessed be the Lord God, blessed be the, Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and that sets up the the structure of the whole Bible right there. Because the tents of Shem are speaking of the two times that the sons of Shem, meaning the descendants of Shem, the Jewish people, will hold the spiritual banner. You've got. All the time, from the very beginning, the spiritual blessing is on Shem. And it goes all the way up until Acts chapter 28. Actually, it starts starts going away in Acts chapter 13. And you get to Acts 28, and the message says we're going to the Gentiles. We're not going to bother with the people from Shem anymore. Shem is out. They no longer carry the spiritual banner. It went from Peter. It went to Paul. Paul is carrying the spiritual banner. He's still a Jew, but he's Going to the Gentiles, and then from there you've got Japheth. Every single one of Paul's letters is written written to who? Gentiles. The Gentiles, Japheth. but specifically Japheth. They're all sons of Japheth. You've got the Romans, you've got the Corinthians, you've got the um, Galatians, and then you've got the Ephesians, you've got the uh, Philippians, and the Colossians, and the Thessalonians are all sons of Japheth. And so here is the tenth of Shem, now being replaced by the tenth of Japheth. He is dwelling in within the tents of Japheth until the rapture of the church. And then after that, what happens? The epistles right after Paul, the last one is Philemon, but the epistle after that is who? Hebrews. Hebrews. It's written to who? The Hebrews. Hebrews, James, Peter. They're all going to the sons of Shem. They're addressed specifically to the pilgrims of the dispersion. It's not speaking about Gentiles. It's speaking about them. So you have the tent of Shem. You've got the tent of Shem, and in there is the tent of Japheth. May he dwell in Shem's tents. He's dwelling in there. That ends, and it goes back to Shem. And then from there, you've got, this is a little too confusing. I'd have to do it on the board to show you all this but you've got the law, you've got all of the time of the law, all of the books of the Old Testament, and then you come to the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all Jesus fulfilling the law. It's still under the tent of Shem. But then John comes along and it does something different. John is emerging of both Jew and Gentile, isn't it? It's not specifically written about fulfilling the law. It's written about the high Christology that's presented there about the Christ who is the mediator, he's the light, he's the word of God. It's different, and it's showing you a transition is happening. So you've gotten rid of the law, now you're into this this transitional thing, and immediately following John comes Acts, which shows you what happens in the Bible. You are given a book like Judges. Judges is presented, and then you get the filler, Ruth. Right? during the time of the Judges. So it's Ruth belongs in the book of Judges, and this happens all through the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 1, God creates everything. In Genesis 2, it gives you the details for the sixth day of Genesis. And you see this again and again. So here you've got John showing you something is happening, and then you get the book of Acts, which shows you the transition, like I said, from whoops, from Peter to Paul. Okay, you've got from Jerusalem. It starts right in Jerusalem, doesn't it? That's where it starts, right in Jerusalem. There's the Mount of Olives, and then they go into Jerusalem, and they start. Okay, and where does it end? Rome. Okay, you've got the Peter is the apostle to the Jew, and you've got Paul as the apostle to the Gentile, okay? You've got, um, uh, uh, and even the structure. If you go back and you look at those introductory, those three introductory days of Acts, I put it all down there. Peter is mentioned by either Peter or Cephas or whatever, it will say 180 times. I'm just making that up, but it's like a lot, okay? And then he's never mentioned again in the second half, maybe once in um Acts 15, you know, he's in there and might be mentioned once or twice, which is a, a decision about the Gentiles. And then Paul is only mentioned a couple times in the first few chapters, and he's mentioned by his name, Saul, his Hebrew name. But all of a sudden it goes to Paul here, and he's called, oh, Saul, who is called Paul, and it gives his Gentile name, the, the name they would be known among the Gentiles, okay? the only two times that he's called Saul in the second half of the book of Acts is when? When he's referring to his time here. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he's not even being called Paul there, he's being called Saul as a memory. But anytime he's addressed, he's addressed as Paul. Everything about what's going on in the Bible shows you that it has nothing to do with two gospels. The point of the hyper dispensationalism thing is nonsense. Their point.
1: Their point is always that, well, the Jews rejected Jesus.
0: Yeah, exactly. Do
1: you think that Jesus didn't know this. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like but, you have to reject them to crucify, them, to sacrifice them for all the sin that's here. It's like it's it was
0: it's there. Absolutely. Th- this is correct. But what they're doing is they're saying that they never mentioned the blood at this time and they mentioned the blood at this time. Okay, so we've got we've got the structure of the, the Bible. We've got it laid out, how everything is based on Noah's blessing and how the Bible is going to be structured so that Shem and then Japheth and then Shem are listed again. Okay. The thing that they miss about what he just said is that the typology of the Old Testament, and anybody that's been in the sermons on Sunday will be able to answer this. What does every single thing in the Old Testament uh, Levitical system, everything point to? Jesus. Jesus. Everything. The fact that they cut off of the fatty lobe of the liver and they put on the altar as a sacrifice points to Jesus. The word that is used is a word that specifically anticipates Christ. The thigh that's taken and given to the high priest or whatever, the the right breast, I think it is, pictures Jesus. Every single detail, every detail of the the, uh, Leviticus 11 dietary laws, every single detail points to Jesus. And hyper-dispensationalists don't read this and they don't study it because they don't understand that. And they say, oh, that's all Jewish symbolism. They'll, they get to Revelation 2 and 3, and they say that's not written to the church. That's written to the Jews of the end times because it's all Jewish symbolism. And he says, I'm walking among the lampstand, and you know you, uh, you'll get a garment of white, and that's all Old Testament symbolism. And they say that's all Jewish. No, that is Christ having fulfilled those things. If they understand that everything in the Old Testament, every single detail of the law of Moses points to one thing, Jesus. If you understand that now, and here's the problem that they have, you've got the Old Testament system, and they say that they were saved in the Old Testament by works, by the law. And then you're saved in the New Testament by Jesus. And so the Jews today are still saved by certain works. And they take Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, and they use that in a prescriptive manner. And if you understand the book of Acts, if you do that, you will have wrong theology. The book of Acts is never to be used in a prescriptive way. It is descriptive. It is a historical account telling you what happened. Okay, so now that you understand that, the Old Testament system, they were saved how? By looking forward to the Messiah. By looking forward to the Messiah. It was always faith. Always. No person was ever saved by the law of Moses. How do we know that? Because when they sinned, they had to go do what? Oh. Go down to... The sanctuary and atone for their sins. And those atonements pictured Christ. They were only, what does Paul call the law? He says it is a tutor to lead us to Christ. Everything about the law was to teach us instruction about when Christ came. And even if they thought, I haven't sinned all year long, I didn't need to go down to Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice, what did they have to do one day a year? They were required on the day of atonement to observe it. And if they didn't observe the Day of Atonement, they were to be cut off from their people. And what did they do on the Day of Atonement? They stayed at home. They didn't go down to Jerusalem. Okay? It was just like the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. Who's going to know if you're coveting? You and God. You're at your home, and there's nobody around. And if you're inside doing your thing, who is going to know? You and God. And that is it. And that means that the Day of Atonement was a day of, begins with F, ends with 8th. Anybody? Faith. It was solely based on faith. You were saved by the atoning sacrifice, which if you know Leviticus 16, if you haven't watched the three sermons on that, or the Leviticus 23 Day of Atonement sermons, go back and watch all four of them, and you will see every single minute detail. Every detail points to Jesus. It was all in anticipation of him. There are not two Gospels. There is one. The Old Testament was solely based on faith. And we know that because Abraham was saved when? Before or after the law? Before the law. Job was a saved believer in Messiah. How do we know in Job 19? It says, yet I know that I will, I will see, my Redeemer lives and I shall stand before him. Okay? And what is he called in Job 1, verse 6? He's called a son of God. Beneha Elohim, a son of God. He is a son of the God, along with the other people that were not even under the law of Moses. They were apart from the law of Moses, and yet they were sons of God through faith in their belief that God would send the Messiah. That is how they were saved, okay? The law was simply given to Israel to anticipate what the rest of the world was supposed to already know in which the knowledge of it was lost almost completely. And eventually it was lost to the point where Christ came to fulfill the law and to usher in the new covenant. It is one new covenant for Jew and for Gentile. We are grafted into that as Gentiles. It was made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It wasn't made with the Gentiles. It was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. One new covenant, which we participate in. How do we know it's the same new covenant that the Jews have? The same covenant? is because in chapter 11 of Corinthians, what does it say? The Lord's Supper which is the new covenant in my blood, which happened the night of his crucifixion. So you know that it pertains to us because he's writing to the Corinthians who are sons of Japheth. Everything points back to Christ, every single thing. And if you miss that, you get into heresy like hyperdispensationalism and you start dividing the church and saying, well, the church started with Paul. The church started on page two of Acts, Acts chapter two. That is where it started. It's the same church. It's one gospel to them. Two different groups of people. One is a a apostle to the Jews because that is his ministry. One is an apostle to the Gentiles because that is his ministry. But it's one gospel going to two different group groups of people. says who the gospels to. Yeah, Romans one sixteen. Okay, let's read that and then see. Now, this is important and we are redeeming the time because it came to my mind and I was just giving a, a point about my friend and then I decided to get off on a little tangent. But it's a good tangent to remember is that the structure of the Bible is based on the blessing, which is for all people. It just is directed to two different groups who are going to carry the spiritual banner for a certain amount of time. Yeah, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, one, of Christ, for it is the power of God to... To salvation for every one who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. There's only one gospel. It's so sad that these and this poor guy. He's such a nice guy, but he gets so confused because he goes to this church over there, and they tell him, "Oh no, there's two gospels." And you know, no, no. I'm sorry, they they have not studied. The problem is that they have not studied the Old Testament. And unless you know what's going on there, the mechanics of what's going on in there, then you're not going to get your New Testament theology correct, most probably. You can, it is possible, but it's very easy to say, oh, well, somebody tells you, no, that's 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 Jewish terminology. We don't use that here. It's not, it's Christ terminology. Right. It's all about Jesus, all of it. So,
1: if that's the case, okay. I got kicked
0: off my thought here. I hate um, when that happens. Yes,
1: yes, it does. But um, anyhow, it's like they're anti-Semites.
0: Well, that, that's that's to. what it comes I down to. I don't want
1: Jews in my life at all. That's even what, even in heaven, always comes down
0: the... to anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Right. Always, right. I, it doesn't matter. It, people will always take something that they dislike. They will pick on that particular issue, and it will become the driving force of everything that they do in their life. And it's sad. We divide up humanity. We divide up. Uh, churches, we divide up schools all based on something that I like or I don't like. Everything should be based on Christ, and if it's not, it's a waste of time. Oh, you know what? Before it falls off, I I just felt it tugging at me. I was at the store, and um, uh, I I went through at Publix, first time, I went through all by myself the self-checkout. Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. It Look was Yeah, well, I did it one time, but somebody helped me. This is about two months ago. I said, I'll never do that again. But the lines were really long. At the other ones, they've got them cut down. So you're kind of forced. They're forcing you to go through these things. They're they're training you. So I thought, I'm gonna go through there. And I did, and I did all by myself. And the guy that I always see him Sunday morning, I said, I'm so proud. I feel like a kid that just graduated high school. He said, You need a yellow star. And I said, I got mine right here. This is my anti-vaccine star. So I, I yeah, just so that if somebody says, Are you vaccinated? I say, No, I've got the yellow star. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, it, it's six point. I didn't want to get the uh oh, the gosh. uh I I, I didn't want to get the star of uh David. oh this is five. Yeah, I didn't want to get the star of day because then somebody would say oh you're being anti Semite or you're whatever. So I got the I got my little my my non vaccinated star. And I got five hundred of them. So every time I put on a shirt I can put it on here. Anyway, um okay. That was just Completely side issue. Okay, we're gonna go on 516.
1: Okay, make I I read it already. Oh, making the most of every opportunity, redeeming the time. Oh,
0: okay, so here we go then. Now I need to start evaluating it. That took a while. Sorry, guys. Guys. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) the word redeeming comes from the Greek word eka exagorazo. It is a combination of two words, ek, which means out of normally, indicates completely out from. Okay, like, um. Uh, If you go to the book of Revelation, it says, I will keep them out of the tribulation to come, okay? Well, if you're a hyper-dispensationalist, it's speaking to the Jews, and that can't be, because they're going through the tribulation, okay? But what it means is I will keep them from the time of tribulation, out from the time of tribulation, which clearly indicates a pre-tribulation rapture, okay? Anyway, um, it means completely out from. This intensifies the word agorazo, which means to buy at the marketplace, so you've got redeeming the time, buy out from the marketplace. In this, then, it indicates to take full advantage of seizing a buying opportunity. For example, making the most of the present opportunity, recognizing its future gain. Okay, that's helps word studies. Once again, I want to give them credit, um, and I did that today. I did. Ec- exagorazzo today, because when I went to Publix, I went to buy new uh, bread for the Lord's Supper on Sunday. And while I was there, I always go now because the economy could collapse at any moment. And I, do they have any two-for-one sales? And they had green beans, packs of four green beans. If you buy one, you get another. So I got that. And then they had um, uh, something else two-for-one. I'm like, okay, that'll last. Oh, um, you know, white chicken breast in a can. It'll last until forever. And so I bought a bunch of that. Two for one. And we'll just put that on the uh, the shelf. And if the Lord takes us out of here, somebody will benefit from our, our saving of food. But there you go. I was redeeming the opportunity to buy up at the marketplace today. So there you go. I did my job. Uh, in the few hours that we have each day, in the short number of days we have each week, and in the quickly fading weeks, months, and years of our lives, anybody that here that's over 50 years old knows that. Anybody here that's over 60 probably knows it better. And if you're over 70, you know how quickly your life has gone by. Anybody disagree with that? We got one kid back there. Don't don't think it's.
1: I know it,
0: goes quick. <laughs> it does. Don't think you're gonna be here forever, buddy. Okay. Then we need to. I didn't mean to call you a kid. No, no, no. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I'm just a saying. He, he... Term. You're a young. I get it.
1: I'm 34. I'm thirty-four.
0: Oh. Oh. Yeah. You're just getting started. you're rubbing it in. Now. It. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, let's see here. Um, uh, months of our lives and years. We need to take advantage of the time we have been given, pursuing the greater and weightier matters which have eternal significance. I'm always oh so proud. Oh. Look at this. I was just got this before we started, and I wanted to bring this into the class today. Please come up. Ah, oh, good. Okay. Listen, talk about redeeming the time and being young. This is going to make you so happy. Listen to this. Okay. You're not going to be able to see it very well, but there's a little girl there. See her? This. Her name is Lila. She's got her arms wrapped around her Bible. Lila, my eight-year-old granddaughter, wanted me to send you an email to let you know she finished her entire kid's Bible, old and new, over 500 pages. She read every single old word. Um, eight-year-old. Oh, uh, there she you go. Isn't that isn't that wonderful? That is a person that is start. Oh, my hair is just, oh, oh, I'm just like shivers. That is a person that is redeeming the time at a young age. Praise God for that. So, I'm so glad that we got this first because otherwise I may have forgotten to include that. What a precious thing. Congratulations to her and to Grandpa, mm-hmm. Grandpa Scott who is just I you know he's just beaming over that. Praise sure. God. Okay. Um Wonderful. Wow. Okay, Um, we'll go on now. Pursuing the greater and weightier matters which have eternal significance. Thank you for sending me that photo of her. She is on the right track, and we will pray that she will stay on that track all the days of her life. Okay, instead of whining about what is bad, we should praise for what is good. Instead of moaning of our situation, we should be in prayer for the need of others and for the glory of God. Instead of reading novels, which satisfy our minds for a moment, we should read and study God's Word, which will enrich our souls for eternity. Rather than telling others about the latest sports statistics, we should tell others about the great deeds of the Lord and the love of God found in Christ Jesus. These are the type of things we should pursue in order to redeem the time. And the reason why is because, as Paul says, the days are evil. The world is a fallen place, even when things are going really well for us individually. There is still death, there is still sadness, and there is pain for others. When one person is becoming rich, others are in the process of losing all that they have. A thousand planes may take off safely, but from time to time, one will not reach its intended landing site. I was watching a video as i was scrolling through mail online today looking for news articles and there's a uh airplane with a very rich person i don't remember who it was i think there were eight people on the plane one of them was a child that had just been baptized i think it was in greece i'm sorry if i got the details wrong and they showed the plane going straight down into a building okay happened today we don't know when our end is going to be the tides rise and fall with regularity but when it is unexpected A tsunami may come and destroy the land. 250,000 people died a few years ago in Indonesia, wiped off of the face of the earth that quickly. They're out there and they're fishing and enjoying. The tides are coming and going just as they always do. It was on
1: Christmas
0: December. Yeah, it was about Christmas time. All of a sudden, 250,000 people are just wiped off the face of the planet. Man does not know the day of his death, And we can never say when we will meet a friend or a family member for the last time. Life application, the days are evil because they are unknown concerning the next moment. Joy may be heard, but sadness may also be waiting there as well. It is our obligation to make the very most of each day for the positive work of the Lord and for the sake of eternity which lies ahead. Our attitude should be, use me up now, Lord my time is yours. I'll tell you what happens every Sunday. People, I'm always telling them, I got to leave early. I can't stay on Sunday. I need to go home. And this reminds me, I'll tell you what my Sunday is like. I get up at the same time, 3.30, and then I start work right about four o'clock after reading the Bible. So it's about four o'clock and I immediately start into work and I do all of the research that I do seven days a week for the update because the news service. If I don't get it in the morning, there's so much more by the end of the day that when I get at the end of the day, I've got twice as much work. So I get all of the news for the Sunday uh, update in the morning, and that takes usually an hour and a half. I also uh, post, I do that, I, I should move that back a little bit. The first thing I do after reading the Bible is I first post the morning commentary, okay, and, me, and I send it out to the people that I send it out to that they also posted in certain places. And then from there, I will uh, type the next commentary, which is 12 days from now. So I have 12 days to think it through, and I have 12 days to check it for error and stuff. Okay, so that's done. And then after that, I will practice the sermon. Okay, that's it usually takes about an hour or so. And uh, you know, any corrections and anything that needs to be done with that six, seven days a week. But on Sunday, I've got the, the sermon stuff, and then I, uh, after that, I will normally get the stuff for the uh, the uh, report. Okay, all of the news articles. Okay, sometimes, let's see, after I do that, I've got lots of emails that I have to check to in case there's something important. So I'm doing that. Okay, we'll just say it's a really busy time before I leave to come to church on Sunday. And you know, Mabel was saying she watched the video that uh, Sergio did. You know, I, I stop at the church, at the store, and I buy the stuff for the church. I come into the church, and I set everything up, and I clean things and do whatever. And so that's busy usually up. I get, maybe you know who come early, maybe an hour where we can sit and talk. Sometimes it doesn't happen, but usually we get a little time. And then, of course, you've got all of the church, and that is full the whole time. We're always got something going on, and then church ends, and as soon as I can get out the door, and I don't mean to ever disregard anybody, that's not my intention, but there's a lot of work to do. I leave here, I get home, and as soon as I get home, I start working, getting the things from the church off that disk into the computer, and while that's downloading, which takes about two minutes, I'm taking the sheets Out of the sermon, so that I'm ready for that. Okay, I've got all of these things ready, and then I have to start editing three things. First, you, and then I have to edit the report, and then I have to edit the sermon. And then while the we'll say the report is rendering, then I have to start editing the sermon. So that's going on at the same time, and then I render that, and I've got to upload them to YouTube and or Rumble. Okay, so that's all going on. The point I'm getting about redeeming the time comes in a minute. That's all just my regular stuff, but. I've got all that, and it's very to me. It's very tedious work because I'm not good with computers, and if I mess up anything, I have no idea how to fix it. I have to do exactly what I was taught by Sergio, and Sergio knows that if I touch anything wrong, which happens, your finger hits a button, and everything kind of. He has to come into the computer, and he has to fix it. And I hate doing that to him because he's got his own life, but he waits patiently every Sunday, and I always give him an update. I'm, I'm done with this, and I'm doing this, so I want him to know that I haven't messed things up, and. And uh But it's real tedious for me because it's stuff I don't understand. And I've got somebody that's dependent on me, like a little kid, you know, in case I mess it up. And that's tedious on me. But what happens after all of that is done is not the end of the day. Because now I have to take everything that was from that Sunday and I have to move it to files that are complete. And I have to move everything for next Sunday into new files that were where those were. And if I don't do that, I will have no time during the week where it's logically correct to do that. All of that has to be transferred. All the photos, all the graphics, all of the, the sermon, everything has to be done. Okay? And so that's tedious work, too, because it's using the computer and things that I don't quite get. And it's a lot of work for me to do this every single Sunday. And then after that, I need to practice the sermon that is eight weeks out. And the reason why is because if I don't do that on Sunday afternoon and get all the graphics ready for it, then it will never get done. It's the only time I can logically do this. If I don't do it, the week work is going to be very, very complicated. So I have to do that and I've got to do all of the graphics and this takes me usually right up until six o'clock. So I have not taken much time off between uh, 4 a.m. and six. Sometimes it goes longer depending on what happens, but after that, If I have time, I'll sit down and I'll turn on the TV and I'll turn on a short video. And before I even get it started, Hedoko will say, dinner's ready, because she sees I'm done. And I didn't get any time today. And then I get up and I sit and have dinner with her and I'm usually done and I go to bed. But Sundays are difficult, okay? But what? Oh, i got to take care. When Hidako is not home, which is every other Sunday, I have to take care of the dogs. And I've got to fit that in there as well. And that adds in about 15 minutes. i got to take them out. I've got to feed them. I've got to take them out again. So everything is, there's a lot to be done. But the the point that I wanted to get to about that, all of that to get to the, the part about the sermon eight weeks from now. I don't actually need to do that. Okay, I may be able to find some time during the week that is logical. I've never been able to find one in my mind that I think I can do this this day and it will work. Never. So I do it there. But I think every single week before I start doing this, every week, the first thing I think is, if the Lord comes, I will have wasted all of this time today doing something that isn't necessary for eight weeks from now. But if he doesn't come in eight weeks from now, if I haven't done that, that sermon that I give to you will not be properly presented. And so I have to think, right here, use me up now, Lord. My time is yours. If I don't do that, it will not be proper for you on Sunday morning, eight weeks from now. And I'm not trying to blow my horn and say how great I am. That's not it at all. The point is that things have to be done. And they have to be done logically, and they have to be done at a point where I'm already completely used up. Completely used up. So uh, that is
1: i'm actually glad you went through all that because i'm going to combine two topics we've talked about that and the fact that none of us are getting any younger oh yeah so it's like you know i've looked at some of the church on the beach stuff i'm like who's the young guy i know i used to be be young and handsome right but it's like you know there's only so many times you you should you really need to pare that down
0: uh well it's it's the only time i can do it i mean i just i don't know you know whatever but I, there are some people that help with other things. You know, the the, the, the little uh, tasty bites that I, I was doing those because somebody said, would you do these? And so that person would send me all of the things that she wants posted. And now somebody has volunteered to just do them. Yep. She asked not to have her name mentioned, so I won't. But she said, I want to do these. And she's in a foreign country. And she does them faithfully. And then somebody else does the graphics for him You know who he is. Okay. And so that took out a whole hour during the week or two hours probably because now the the person that wants these. Yeah. And so, and they just volunteered to do it. I'm so grateful for it because there are things that I started to say, okay, this is what they want and I want to do them. And so I cut out my free time from Friday afternoons, which normally I, if somebody visits, that's when I, I I spend time with them is on Friday. That's my (laughs) slowest day of the week. And so I try to save that in case visitors come and they want to do something Friday is it. And But I was using that time on Friday to do those things. And so now, thank the Lord that he sent somebody to do it. But the things that I do, I can't pare back, and I can't delegate them to somebody else. There are things that I have to do for the church. I, I, I You know, if I could delegate it or give it to somebody, if they want to do it, I would, but I can't. So anyway, there you go. Use me up now, Lord. That was the whole point of that long and boring talk. I'm sorry. Use me up now, Lord. My time is yours. And if everybody has that attitude about what they are doing, I don't care what your job is. If you work for the post office or if you, you know, work at a veterinary clinic or whatever, use me up now. My time is yours. You may be, you know, responsible to a person that doesn't know Jesus, but you do your job faithfully and you do it according to the best you can. But when you have your free time, what are you going to do with your free time? Are you going to spend it, you know, doing this or that or one thing or another? Then the Lord doesn't grudge us having fun and happiness. That's for sure, because the Bible people have fun and happiness. They have times where they get together and they do things. But there is a time for play and there is a time for work. There's a time for, you know, to be born and a time to die. And as Solomon said, there's a time for everything. What is the most important part of your time? That is what you have to ask yourself. And then use that to the glory of God. Okay, verse 517. Go ahead. Okay. Therefore, do
1: not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is.
0: Okay, next verse is going to be great. Um, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Oh, okay. Now that's not the next verse. Isn't the one that I was thinking of? I was thinking of something else. But um, uh, the next verse gets into don't be, you know, a drunkard and all that. But I was, I was thinking of another verse that follows after something similar to this. Okay, the word therefore is certainly referring to the thought of verses 15 and 16, which say, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Okay, but in a fuller sense, it is speaking of the entire argument, which led to that statement. We are to be imitators of God, working circumspectly and not as fools. Rather, we are to be wise. Once again, where are you going to get wisdom? at least in what Paul is speaking about. I'm not going to find it anywhere but here. This is it, okay? Now, you can get wisdom. I Don't get me wrong. I love to read quotes by Aristotle or, you know, Einstein or whatever, and, and they were smart people. But the wisdom that this is referring to is the wisdom of God, and you're not going to find that apart from Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you are a very smart guy about a discipline like Albert Einstein, unless you include the fear of the Lord, I want to understand who God is and what he has done. Your analysis will not be a perfectly good analysis. It'll be okay, but did you get an email from me two days ago? Okay, I sent you. Last week, you said you didn't get my email about something. I'm like, how could you not have the message? Okay, and then after you made a call, remember you called me and left a message? Yeah. Okay, immediately I sent you a message. You didn't get it. Yeah. We got a problem with our message system, buddy. Okay. So we're going to get that fixed, okay? Yeah. I was I was severely unhappy that I didn't get a response and now I know why. I wasn't unhappy. I was kidding. Anyway, um uh what was I talking about? Um <laughs> I was talking about something and she shows up late and gets me off of my uh well, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Lot. I remember the fear of the Lord, okay, Einstein will have a very good idea, but he will not include the Lord in it and therefore his idea was incomplete. Okay? And it Not it, it, the general theory of relativity, for example, is a great thing, and he was able to deduce this. But what did he spend the rest of his life doing after that? He was trying to unprove it because he didn't have a fear of the Lord, he was what is known as a Benedict Spinoza pantheist. He believed what Spinoza said about uh, the universe is God, God is the universe, it's all one. Okay, pantheism, pan all, and theism, God, all is God. And so he he came up with the general theory of relativity. He realized that there had to be a beginning. There had to be, based on what he came up with, because time, space, and matter all occurred at the same moment. And theologians have been saying this for thousands of years, and he suddenly proved it in his theory okay he proved that time space and matter all had to happen at the same time and as that is true there must be a beginning and if there's a beginning there must be a begin er and it scared him and the rest of his life he spent looking for the theory of everything because he wanted to cling to the model of pantheism he couldn't let go of it and he did not have a fear of the lord whose name he bears israel It's unbelievable. Instead of just saying, there is a God, I've been wrong, and he's the God of my people, he rejected that. And so if you don't have that attitude, if you don't have that thought, Johannes Kepler, what is he quoted, most famously quoted for? I should wait and just give this on Sunday, but now that I've said it, somebody will look it up. Science is thinking God's thoughts after him. That's right. Science is thinking God's thoughts after him. He was a man that knew the Lord, and therefore what he did was to pursue a knowledge of God. Einstein didn't do it that way. Einstein was a very smart guy, but it was not God-directed smarts. And there's a difference between the two. And it's a very sad, it's, it's an eternity-deciding difference, but it's a very sad one, even from a moral human perspective. Very sad. Okay, in a fuller sense, it is speaking of the entire argument, which led to that statement. We are to be imitators of God, walking circ- circumspectly and not as fools. I hate to say it, as smart as he was, Einstein was a fool, because he did not pursue the fear of the Lord. Rather, we are to be wise. Now Paul says, do not be unwise. Here he uses a different word than that of verse 15. It is aphron, and it means, it might be afron. I don't have the uh, Greek squiggly above it, so it might be affron, and it means lacking perspective, because short-sighted, for example, lacking the overall picture, meaning the perspective, needed to act prudently. Doesn't that fit with what I just said about Einstein? He was lacking the overall picture, because he had rejected the most important part of the picture, and so he, of course, is going to not be prudent in his decisions. To explain what this entails, he then says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we're going to go to the Proverbs, and we're going to go to Proverbs 9, because I have it listed here. And we're going to see what he says, probably what I just quoted, and I'll be, I should have just uh, said it, but let me see, I'm going to take you to Proverbs 9, and then in verse 10, it's, yes, I just quoted it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One his understanding. It's Proverbs 9.10. He had no knowledge of the Lord and no desire to pursue him. And because of that, his thinking was flawed. It wasn't incorrect, but it was flawed. We began to demonstrate wisdom by fearing the Lord. From that stepping stone, we are to learn what his will, the Lord's will, is for us. How do we do this? Do we go meditate in the corner of a room? Do we watch TV hoping to hear a wise man tell us of what God's will is? What is it that brings us to an understanding of the will of the Lord? It is reading and remembering Scripture. It is the source of our understanding of what we are to do, how we are to act, and what we are to refrain from doing. I guarantee you if Albert Einstein came to the Lord during his life, everything that he did after that moment would have been beyond exceptional. exceptional, It would have been incredible. But because he didn't have an understanding of the Lord and he was actually scared about the thought of the Lord, everything went down the wrong path. It is incomprehensible that people do not want to learn Scripture, and yet they claim to be followers of the Lord. You hear it all the time. How can you follow and imitate that which you do not know? How can you do it? Although spoken to Israel while under the law, Jesus' words in the parable of the sower show us where such an attitude should lead. Hang on a second here. Mark, Luke, and we're going to go to Luke 12. And then we're going to go to verse 47, and it says there, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. And then verse 48, But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Further, without knowing the word and applying it to a right understanding in context, in context of what is saying, he then gives these words from Matthew 13, where he says, give me a second here, Matthew 13, verse 19, he says. Oh, that's a long chapter. Okay, 13, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. Is this how we want our state to be? Does it matter so precious little to us what the Lord intends for our proper walk in his presence? Or are we willing to have The wicked one, come and steal away our joy, which is sown in our hearts. And I will tell you this, the confusion in the church is because of the wicked one. And it's also a second reason is because people are too lazy to pick up the word and to read it. The devil wants nothing more than there to be chaos within the church. If there's chaos within the church, then people will not be saved if they hear a false gospel. They will not be saved if they go to a church and there's all kinds of crazy things going on. The devil loves to have the word twisted. How do we know? Because he did it in the Garden of Eden and he did it again to the Lord when the Lord was in the wilderness. He tested him with the word. He knows the word better than you and I will ever know it. And he will use it to twist people away from the word. And then the second thing I said is just a lack of will on people's parts. There are pastors, all, I've talked about them before. I had a minister at the church right down the road, on McIntosh Road, where I used to attend years ago. in. The, when my children went to the school that was affixed to the church, and he was in Bible study, and he said, I've read the Bible once. He had been a minister for 31 years, and he had read it one time, one time. And I thought, what a crying shame. You ought to read it at least twice a year, and that's if you're doing a poor job of it. Read it more, right? And then, um, uh, well, you know who I'm going to talk about. I won't give his name because I really love the guy, but he was a one of my favorite preachers at a church that I happened to be ordained at. And he never read the Old Testament. And I thought, how can you stand in the pulpit and preach and not have known the contents of it? He said, I need to read that sometime. How did he also I'm not hyper you know, how, how, You know what? I'll tell you what that is. It comes down to somebody happened to be a very good teacher at a very good seminary that gave him instruction. Because otherwise, if he went to a crummy crummy seminary, he would have had no idea if he was being told the truth or not. He was a very good preacher. I never heard a sermon that I thought, I don't like what he said. It doesn't correspond with the word of God. It was always very good. But that was solely by the grace of God. Because if he doesn't know what the word of God says, then he had to have gotten his doctrine from man and he happened to get it from the right person. I don't know what university or whatever, but that is the problem. If we're not willing to study this thing for ourselves, we are open to whatever we are taught. That's why you need, after you get done here, to go home for the rest of the week and read the Word, because next week I might say something that you say, well, that doesn't sound right, and we can talk it through, and maybe I'm wrong. But unless you have an idea of what the Word says, how do you know? You can't. You have to be willing to redeem the time and put the thing that is most important first. Again, is this how we want our state to be? Does it matter so precious little to us what the Lord intends for our proper walk in his presence? Are we willing to have the wicked one come and steal away our joy, which was sown in our hearts? Life life application. A Bible which remains unopened and unread is a true tragedy. 518.
1: Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit.
0: Okay, this one says, let me read it really quickly, um, little different. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. You had debauchery, this one has dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, close, but different word. Okay, this verse, unfortunately, has been taken to amazingly absurd extreme extremes by some. For one poor handling of the issue of drinking to another, the doctrine of total abstinence from alcohol arises. Neither this verse nor any verse in Scripture can be used to justify that stand. The words begin with, and do not be drunk with wine. Being drunk is something which has happened since the earliest times of man on earth. I hope I have time to finish this. The Bible is full of stories of people drinking to excess. What was probably most on Paul's mind was the custom at the time of the orgies held to Bacchus, the god of wine. In festivals, such as this one, and others as well, one thing led to another, and it is noted that people would go from heavy drinking to running wildly in the streets and committing all kinds of sexual sins. This is why he writes in which is dissipation. The words refer to be drunk, not with wine. Everybody got that? Dissipation refers to be drunk, not with wine it is evident that wine itself does not necessarily lead to dissipation, because if it did, then it wouldn't say, wine that gladdens the heart of man and all the other countless verses that talk about it as a blessing from the Lord. The Lord's first miracle was to make wine. No, it was not non-alcoholic wine, okay? If you read the context of it, there's no doubt that it was, but people will insert that into there because they can't let it go. And yes, it certainly had alcohol content. The consumption of alcohol is condoned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 22, explicitly condoned. He says, don't you have homes to go eat and drink in? And he's talking about drinking alcoholic beverages, okay? He specifically says, don't do that here. Go home and do it, okay? And Timothy is instructed to drink wine. Obviously, that's medicinal, but uh, some type of stomach medicine in 1 523, these and countless other examples show that the drinking of alcohol is not forbidden in scripture. I typed up a whole thing on it because I got so tired of hearing people come up with their things and say, you know, you can show somebody right from the scripture, and I actually had somebody post on Facebook one day, one day, I don't care. Drinking wine is wrong. And I thought, I've just showed you in the Bible where it's not wrong. And you know, but that's what happens when you have a presupposition about something. You are right. The Bible is wrong, and that's all that matters, okay? So, uh, throughout the Bible, there is acceptable drinking, like in the time of the tithes, Deuteronomy 14, go down to Jerusalem and buy whatever you want, wine, drink, or, you know, Blinko drink, and there is unacceptable drinking. The same is true with acceptable eating, and acceptable and unacceptable eating. He says, you know, don't be a glutton, okay? He doesn't say, no eating. That would be unreasonable. He just says, don't be a glutton, right? Okay, so... Um, uh where is it? Uh, people can have money, but they are not greedy with money, right I got money in my po- do I no, I got money over there. <laughs> anyway, uh, just because you have money doesn't mean you're greedy, okay they're just not to be greedy with money. People are not to engage in illicit sex, but not all sex is illicit. that's right. Reason and a proper use of scripture clearly shows that drinking is not forbidden in the Bible but dissipation, which results from drinking, is. One is not to drink to the point of excess. Instead, they are to be filled with the Spirit, Paul says. Uh, we got four more minutes. As has been seen elsewhere, the term be filled is passive in the Greek, just as be drunk is in the first clause. A person drinks wine, and the wine makes them drunk. A person likewise needs to do something in order to be filled with the Spirit. They need to yield themselves. The believer has all, I've said this a million times, can't say it enough, the believer has all of the spirit he will ever receive the moment that he calls on Christ. All of it. But the spirit can get more of the person. On the day of a person's marriage, they are now married and they will never get more married. But the spouse can get more of the other spouse as one yields to another. The same is true with the spirit. In order to be so filled, the Christian is to sing praises, pray, worship, fellowship, read the Bible, talk on the things of the Lord, and so on. In doing these things, they are then filled with the Spirit. Paul's heart is that believers would so yield themselves to the Spirit that they would become revelers in God's goodness at all times. Not revelers in dissipation, even for a moment. Good, we're done. Life application. I didn't want to rush through that, but we're almost done. Almost out of time. The Bible needs to be handled carefully and without regard to presuppositions or biases. We are not to insert our desires, pet peeves, or insecurities into our interpretation of Scripture. Instead, we are to accept that there are things we may or may not indulge in which are permitted by the Bible. If we do not participate in them, whether drinking of alcohol, eating of certain foods, or whatever else, we are not to impose our weakness in that area on others. That is the lesson for the day. We've got to have a prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the chance to come in your presence. And Lord, I'm certain that every person here would be uh, agree that we're very proud to hear about, I think her name was Lila, if I remember, the young lady that's read her Bible through. And we would pray right now that you would bless her in her heart all the days of her life that she would be willing to continue to pick that book up and mature in it and read it and read it and read it and let it dwell in her richly. And we pray for her on that. And we also pray for all of the people that we mentioned at the beginning of the class. We thank you for the many blessings that you have given us, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. You have given us so much and yet we want more. Help us to be content in our lives and to just be satisfied with this word, precious word dwelling in us until the day we come. And, into the presence of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of every hope and desire we should have. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we me back this baby up. Break.